Welcome to Abide in Liberty, a podcast empowering patriots everywhere to re-enthrone faith, family, and freedom as the bedrock pillars of liberty in education, our communities, and our nation. Welcome back, everybody, for another episode of Abide in Liberty. I'm so glad that you're here with me today. I mentioned last week that uh, I was going to start diving into um, some more current events and how they relate to the principles that we've been learning about. And as I was thinking about where to start with it, there's, there's so much material here to pull from. There is so much going on in our society and that has gone on in our society over the past few years that relates directly to freedom and its erosion that it was really hard to pick just one thing to start with. But I decided to start with the Second Amendment. And the reason for that is this one is one that we cannot lose. If this one falls, our ability to fix the other problems in our country and the ability to repair the erosion of all the other freedoms that have been chipped away over the years disappears. Because this is what gives the citizenry its teeth to hold the government accountable. And that's really what the Second Amendment is about. You know, I know there's been a lot that's been said um, because the Second Amendment mentions, you know, a well-regulated militia being essential for freedom. Every citizen has a right to keep and bear arms. And so as we've transitioned away from standing militias at the state level and we have a standing army with the Navy, um, the Army, the Marines, and so forth, a lot of folks have looked at that and said, well, this isn't really applicable anymore. We have a military now. We didn't have that at the beginning of this country. when We couldn't afford it. It's not something that had been developed yet. So at the time, sure, it made sense that we would need something like that, but that's outdated. And of course, that's their favorite. Anyone who's attacking the Constitution, that's their favorite argument. Oh, it's just outdated. It's an old, dusty document. But they completely missed the point of the Second Amendment. It wasn't meant to be something that tied us over until there was a standing army. In fact, as we'll see, the Founding Fathers were highly suspicious of any standing army whatsoever. Now, we've obviously come far from that, and there's a lot to be said for a strong, well-trained defense force as a deterrent to countries coming and, and trying to attack us. And in fact, this was kind of, you know, we talked about this in the 5,000-year elite principles, the principle of peace through strength. And George Washington was a huge fan of this. He knew very well the type of attack that a perceived weakness invited. That was the whole story of the American Revolution. Great Britain thought it would be no problem to attack these weak, untrained, undisciplined backwoods colonies. Now, they turned out to be wrong, but at the expense of many lives and after a very long, arduous, painful, painful war. And so George Washington was one of the first who wanted desperately to have the means for the United States to defend itself, to project strength so that people would think twice, countries would think twice before coming and trying to attack the United States. And one of those quotes that I read before, and I'll repeat it again, said, the very fame of our strength and readiness would be a means of discouraging our enemies. For tis a wise and true saying that one sword often keeps another in the scabbard. 
The way to secure peace is to be prepared for war. They that are on their guard and appear ready to receive their adversaries are in much less danger of being attacked than the supine, secure, and negligent. And that was by Benjamin Franklin. That principle of peace through strength applies not only to nations, but to individuals. And it also applies to the balance of power between the citizens and those in the government who are entrusted to secure our liberties. It also applies to making sure that the citizens have a way to compel the government to do its job if it tries to abuse its authority. Here are some quotes from the Founding Fathers on the purpose of the Second Amendment itself. The laws, and this was by Thomas Jefferson, the laws that forbid the carrying of arms disarm only those who are neither inclined nor determined to commit crimes. Such laws make things worse for the assaulted and better for the assailants. They serve rather to encourage than to prevent homicides, for an unarmed man may be attacked with greater confidence than an armed man. George Mason, another founding father, said, To disarm the people is the most effectual way to enslave them. Noah Webster, who is another founding father, said, Before a standing army can rule, the people must be disarmed, as they are in almost every country in Europe. The supreme power in America cannot enforce unjust laws by the sword, because the whole body of the people are armed and constitute a force superior to any band of regular troops. So here he's saying you can't have a standing army, but before they can rule, before they can enforce their will on the country, you've got to disarm the people. But so long as you have an armed populace, the military can't take over, which is exactly what happened in Nazi Germany. People were disarmed, the military took over, and there's nothing the people could do about it. They were stuck. And in this case, the Jews were the targets. But there were others as well, and those who didn't like what they were seeing happening to the Jews were powerless to stop it. St. George Tucker, in Blackstone's commentary on the laws of England, said, This may be considered as the true palladium of liberty. The right of self-defense is the first law of nature. In most governments, it has been the study of rulers to confine this right within the narrowest limits possible. Wherever standing armies are kept up and the right of the people to keep and bear arms is under any color or pretext whatsoever prohibited, liberty, if not already annihilated, is on the brink of destruction. When you have a strong standing army and a disarmed populace, your liberty is in trouble. Now, this is not something, this is not a new idea. Again, we say, we've been saying these things recently. Proponents of the Second Amendment have been making these same arguments, but they didn't invent this. This is a lesson from history. This is a true principle, peace through strength. And basically what it all comes down to is it's insanity to think that you can help protect the antelope, that you can keep the antelope more safe by cutting off its horns. There are literal predators out there who seek to prey on the weak. Lions on the savannah go for the weakest and the sickest, those less able to defend themselves. And human predators are no different. So you're not doing the antelope, you are not doing the assaulted any favor by taking away 
or limiting their means of defense. And the reason why this amendment is so important and why the Founding Fathers wanted to put it in there and put it right up there at the top of the list is number two, was because they knew that they had built all of these checks and balances into the Constitution. There were ways that if the federal government overstepped its bounds, the states could check them. If the states overstepped their bounds, the federal government could hold them accountable. If the three branches of government, if one of them went out of balance, the other two could help whip them into shape and bring them back into line. But the last line of defense, if all of that failed, at least you would have a government that feared the people. And the people through that fear, could keep their own government under control. The government, if everyone was armed, would have no way to completely run amok and trample on the rights and lives of its citizens. That was the idea. Yes, personal self-defense, burglar. I mean, that was all a part of it. It's a, it's a you know, how did, again, how did he refer to this? The right of self-defense is the first law of nature, and that self-defense against individuals attacking your person or big bad governments attacking you. You have the right to defend yourself. And so long as you have the ability to protect yourself of oppressors of all sorts and titles and all levels of strength, freedom can prosper. If they try to trample on our right to free speech, trample on our rights to assemble, to worship God according to the dictates of our own conscience, the Second Amendment is the last line of defense. Now, that may be really unpopular to say, and I'm not calling for a civil war or anything like that, but anytime I see us moving in the direction of more restriction on the ability of people to defend themselves, I worry. I worry that our freedom is on really rocky footing because it is. And the scriptures bear this idea out. This is not a principle that isn't supported by God's word. Some of my favorite chapters from the Book of Mormon are the war chapters, and I've talked about these before, but in one instance, when Amalekiah, while he's off, and I've talked about this story before, he's off, you know, usurping authority from the Lamanite king, he's killing off his competition, and he's gaining the kingship of the Lamanites so that he can then come back and attack his own people, the Nephites, because he wants not just to be king of the Lamanites, he wants to be king of everything. While that's happening, Moroni's back in Nephite territory fortifying the cities. And there's two cities in particular that are near the borders between between the Nephite territory and the Lamanite territory that were kind of constant... objects of attack by the Lamanites because they were relatively weak cities. So he took the time to make those two cities stronger than pretty much any other. And so the Lamanites, when they decide to come back and attack, believing that those cities were probably weak, you know, where, where do they go? Of course, they're going to go attack the cities where they perceive the greatest weakness. And that's exactly what they do. They show up at the first city and are surprised because it's not weak anymore. And they're so surprised that they don't even try to attack it. One sword keeps another in its scabbard. They kept their swords in their scabbard on that city. Now, I don't know exactly why they did this. This is kind of just the way that I imagine it. You know, they felt kind of sheepish. They'd been scared away from the city. So as they're marching over to the next city, the next week's city, they make themselves a promise. And I've done this before. You know, I kind of get scared away from something or 
you know, maybe I fall off the wagon on exercise a little bit and I'm pumping myself up. All right, this next time, this next week for sure, I'm going to do better. I'm, I'm making myself a promise. I'm committing here. And that's kind of what they did. They're on their way. They're feeling a little sheepish because they kind of chickened out at the last city. So they all come together and say, pinky promise. We're attacking the next one, no matter what. And we're going to take them out. We're going to storm that city. They show up and it's just as strong, if not stronger than the other city that they just run from. But because, you know, dudes and egos, <laughs> it made this promise. They had to follow through now. They had to go attack this city, even though it was too strong. And they ended up just getting hammered, right? I mean, tons of their people, they were filling up, they built these ditches and tall towers around the city and their bodies were filling up these ditches. The only place they could attack was at the place of entrance. And so just tons of these Lamanites are killed and not a single Nephite dies. There are many that are wounded, but none of them die. These defenses work. And then from then on, you know, they're doing the best they can to avoid these strong cities. The projection of strength really did act as a deterrent. And not and not just the projection, but when the Lamanites decided to test those strengths, they held up. It wasn't just a show. They were actually prepared and strong enough to fight them back. In Alma 46, verse 14, starting in verse 14, it says, Now the Nephites were taught to defend themselves against their enemies, even to the shedding of blood if it were necessary. But they were taught never to give an offense and never to raise the sword except it were against an enemy, except it were to preserve their lives. First law of nature is the law of self-defense. And so long as they honored that law of nature, that law of God, and only shed blood if it were in self-defense, they were protected. They were given godly power to overcome their enemies. And this was their faith, that by so doing, God would prosper them in the land, or in other words, if they were faithful in keeping the commandments of God, that he would prosper them in the land, yea, warn them to flee or to prepare for war according to their danger. God would make it known unto them whether they should go to defend themselves against their enemies. And by so doing, the Lord would deliver them. And this was the faith of Moroni, and his heart did glory in it, not in the shedding of blood, but in doing good, in preserving his people, yea, in keeping the commandments of God, yea, in resisting iniquity. And then one of my favorite verses in scripture, yea, verily, verily, I say unto you, if all men had been and were and ever would be like unto Moroni, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. Moroni's tireless quest to defend and preserve his people and to defend and preserve his liberty was righteous. He was someone that was so resistant to Satan's temptations that if we all lived and felt and thought and behaved like he did, the very powers of hell would be shaken forever. That's powerful. Defending our country, defending ourselves, and defending our families against those who would deprive us of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is God's work. And the reason for that is because without that ability to defend ourselves against people and against oppressive governments, no other freedom is possible. And there is no free government that allows God's plan of agency to reach its full maturation and full realization. There was an Instagram post that was floating around that had listed um, 
lots and lots of stats on gun control and their connection with mass genocide. Because I mean, the inevitably when we talk about guns, there are terrible atrocities that are perpetrated by people with guns. There are also terrible atrocities that are perpetrated by people who construct bombs or with knives or who take vans and plow them through crowded thoroughfares. This happens all the time. People have been killing each other and found very creative ways to do it since the dawn of man. Um, And regardless of the tools available, people find a way to kill a lot of people. Um, But the debate is always, well, if we banned guns, we could save so many people. We could avoid these mass shootings. We could avoid all these things. And first of all, I just want to point out that it is very rare that we find mass shootings occurring in places that are not gun-free zones. There's a reason why most of these mass shootings happen in a place where guns aren't allowed. And it's because it's for the same reason that the Lamanites avoided the city where there was perceived strength, where the Nephites seemed like they were capable of defending themselves. There's a reason why the lion goes after the weaklings rather than the strongest, biggest antelope. And there's a reason why the psychopaths who perpetrate these horrible crimes seek out places where the chances of them being stopped, where people are less likely to be able to defend themselves. There's a reason why they're looking for those places, and that's where most of these things happen. But even besides that, there's a real numbers game we have to play. You know, there's, we accept all kinds of bad outcomes because uh, they're not as bad as they would be without the solution. So take, for um, take cars, for instance. Cars kill lots of people every year. Why do we accept that? Why is why do we accept that we can? Why don't we just ban cars because they kill people? And the reason is that the people saved through the modern transportation system and through the quick access to medical attention that we get through rapid transportation of medicines, ambulances, fire trucks, the ability to get to the doctor quickly and easily, or across the country or across the state or across the town to the specialists that we need, the people that are saved are more than those who are lost. There is a net gain in people living today than there would be if cars and the modern transportation system had never been invented. So unfortunately, we live in a fallen world and things aren't perfect. And we make these trade-offs all the time. There are benefits that outweigh the negatives when it comes to cars and transportation. We would not have all the advancements that we have that have prolonged life expectancy, that have um, sent childhood mortality through the floor without that. And so, yeah, we accept that there are some few deaths that come from these cars, but there are way more people alive today because of these trans, these dangerous death machines than would be if we didn't have them. And the same is true with guns, unfortunately. There are terrible things that happen, and they shouldn't, and we should try to fix those if we can, but within certain limits, within the limits of the Second Amendment. So anyways, going back to these stats, I'm just going to read through these. In 1929, the Soviet Union established gun control. From 1929 to 1953, about 20 million dissidents unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. In 1911, Turkey established gun control. 
and from 1915 to 1917, one and a half million Armenians, unable to defend themselves, were rounded up and exterminated. Germany established gun control in 1938, and from 1939 to 1945, a total of 13 million Jews and others who were unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. China established gun control in 1935. From 1948 to 1952, 20 million political dissidents, unable to defend themselves, were rounded up and exterminated. Guatemala established gun control in 1964, and from 1964 to 1981, 100,000 Mayan Indians, unable to defend themselves, were rounded up and exterminated. Uganda established gun control in 1970, and from 1971 to 1973, 300,000 Christians, unable to defend themselves, were rounded up and exterminated. Cambodia established gun control in 1956, and from 1975 to 1977, one million educated people, unable to defend themselves, were rounded up and exterminated. If you do the math, that's roughly 56 million defenseless people were rounded up and exterminated in the 20th century. That number is absolutely staggering and it dwarfs the mass shooting deaths, not only in our country, but throughout the world. The founding fathers had looked at similar history in their recent past and had come to the same conclusion that the biggest threat to liberty and to life of citizens was the governments who were entrusted with their protection and safety. And that it was absolutely vital that people be able to defend themselves against the juggernaut that doesn't have the ability just to kill a few people, but millions of people. That's what the Second Amendment is there for. Yes, do people still do terrible things? Do we need to figure out how to prevent and detect those things before they happen? Um, Do we need to figure out how to get those people help so that they don't turn to killing people as a result? Yes, absolutely. But the answer is not to deprive people of their ability to defend themselves. If we try to violate the principle of peace through strength, we're in very dangerous territory. Now, if you're hearing all these facts and you think you want to go fact check, please do. Um, you know, I'll, I'll save you the trouble. If you go look this up on uh, Snopes or Political Fact, they've written um, articles that debunk all of these statistics saying that, first of all, look, the Facebook fact checkers have flagged these as not factual. So that's one piece of evidence that this isn't real because you can trust social media fact checkers because they're independent, even though they're owned by Facebook themselves. But the other argument they make is that there's no direct connection between gun confiscation and subsequent genocides. So they're kind of making the causation versus correlation rule, right? Just because there's a correlation between disarming citizens and then a genocide happening, that doesn't mean that one causes the other. And while that's true, generally speaking, but when we apply all of history and we look at case after case after case, we can start to make a better case of causation. And when we compare this with the principle of peace through strength and how important that is, 
we kind of can strengthen our argument here that there is a causal relationship. Now, they go on to elaborate on this idea that there is no direct, um, no direct correlation because, for example, under Nazi Germany's regulations, it was the Jews living under the Third Reich that were forbidden to own or possess any form of weapons. And because they were such a small percentage of the population confiscating them, you know, if all the Jews had been armed, they weren't a big enough population that they could have stopped the Third Reich. So really what they're saying here is, no, this doesn't work because there weren't enough guns to begin with to have made a difference. The Third Reich would have been able to do this anyways, because even if the Jews had been armed, there wouldn't have been enough people armed overall in the country to have been able to stop the Third Reich. Not only about you, but to me, that just makes the case for why it's important for citizenry to be armed. It sounds like to me you're making the case that the reason why this happened is there weren't enough guns. So at the same time they're refuting this argument, they're they're using examples to just prove how important it is for people to be armed. And then they go on and they talk about the Soviet Union and how, you know, during that extermination, really what they were doing is they were confiscating guns from the military. People who, those were the only people that were allowed to have weapons in the first place. And so those were the ones that were confiscated. So again, it was such a small percentage of the population that, you know, that that genocide could have probably happened without the gun confiscation. So that means there's no connection here. Which again, is just insane logic. <laughs> really? So, so they could have done this. So, so the implementation of the gun control didn't directly lead to the genocide because there weren't enough guns for them to defend themselves in the first place. Which again, seems to me to say that the reason for a genocide is people aren't able to defend themselves. There weren't enough to begin with, and there certainly weren't enough after the gun control had been implemented. Although I do wonder if, you know, the, the people who, in that case, were the military, they were the ones possessing weapons. Um, these were the ones that knew how to use it best. Would they have thought twice if they had not disarmed their most skilled firearms users in that country? We'll never know for sure. But these, these arguments against these statistics are not refuting the statistics themselves because the dates and the numbers are accurate, but they're trying to make the case that there's no direct connection. And the best they can come up with is there's no direct connection because these countries were already so underarmed that the genocide could have happened anyways. It's not a great case for uh, gun control. It's pretty clear with history as our guide, and it should be fairly obvious that restricting gun ownership and violating the Second Amendment will result in more deaths, not fewer. And you don't have to really look farther than some of the most restrictive gun cities in the country to see that that's true. Um, Places in the country where guns are prohibited are not safer. They're far from it. I don't have all the answers for how to solve school shootings. I, I don't know exactly how we can make improvements there. I've heard some good ideas. I've heard some terrible ones. But what I do know is that violating the principle of peace through strength and repealing or handcuffing the Second Amendment in any way is absolutely not the answer. You do not violate eternal principles and end up with better outcomes. Thank you for listening to Abide in Liberty. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and share this with friends and family. In the meantime, Keep up with the show online at AbideInLiberty.com. Also, if you'd like to help our K-12 bless and educate more families, contact us by visiting LibertyYouthAcademy.org. Until next time, 
Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, and be strong.